Hey. Hello? 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 Oh, I don't know what that is. 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 Jason. This call is being recorded. Hey, man. That is Jason, so weird. I think they're speculating on the other line that we can't do four, but it's giving me the option to merge them. Should I do it? Yeah, try it if you want. Yeah. All right, here goes. That sounded like Mitchell. Yeah, I'm still here. I can hear everybody. Okay, yeah, I think it worked. All right. Did it? Did it? Like all I could hear was my own echo for a while. I don't know what happened here. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was with you for that, Jason. <laughs> did, did that happen to you? Was it just like? Was it no, I just heard. It wasn't. I didn't speak because I was afraid. I saw. <laughs> I saw you fall into echo hell. <laughs> I just watched. I just watched. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I think it'll be helpful to us if if we have some type of direction in our conversation and and how we talk, unless we talk over each other. Thankfully, it seems that we have a a pretty deferential crowd and that we had a a good bit of silence before I started this. Brother... I'm not surprised that you're the first to recommend a direction. <laughs> What's totally that in keeping. Totally Nickelodeon to to organize conversations. I just want to have a good old time here, and I think that happens best when we know what we're doing. I'm sure you're right. You're sweet to me, man. Uh, Craig, what do you think of the matter? What do I think about having... Uh, a system? Yeah. Either way, man. <laughs> it, I'll tell you, you said that and I thought, this guy must be new here because <laughs> usually uh, usually it's just anarchy and that's nobody questions it. <laughs> Although we did, we did bring attention to it uh, and uh, Michael, I told them about Tim telling me about the Syrian method of conversation where you interrupt each other and it's and it's uh, just a sign of your familiarity and comfortability with one another. Amen. Uh, when it was chaos, was it just the three of you, or was there a fourth person sitting in my seat? Two, three. This is our first with four. Well, Jason, you're the one recording. Uh, I'll call on you next to give some commentary. What sort of order do you want to use, if any? I, I don't know. If you can think of a structured system, I'm down to try it. I, I don't know how we'd even go about that. Mitch, Craig, any advice? We could use the the walkie-talkie protocol. We have to say over... Uh, (laughs) 10-4. Mitchell, do you know what that phrase means? Uh, 10-4, I guess, is for, like, police radio uh, when you're signing off. Wow. 
I think generally if if there's a place that someone wants to start, uh, then I'll get on board that bandwagon. I was just curious what Michael Robb's controversial opinions are. I'm sure that there's lots of them. For instance, I think that Jesus is Lord. He died and he rose from the dead bodily. And that's pretty controversial. Over. Over. <laughs> <laughs> that is controversial in a lot of places. Blessedly, not on this phone call. What a strange occurrence. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I think controversy is a great thing. I think noticing when something is over is wise. I also think it might be helpful if we're willing to, to call on each other. When we ask a question, here's the question, Craig, why don't you answer? Or here's the question, Michael, what is it that you believe that's controversial? That sounds great. So, Craig, how did you know I have controversial opinions? Well, <laughs> it was just a suspicion. I, we've talked in the past. <laughs> and I, I didn't hear anything too radical, and so I, I kind of wanted to just poke and see what came out. Greg and I, for a while, tried to come up with better party questions uh, to ask at parties. I, I don't know if that was actually one of them, but it reminds me of that game. <laughs> Bert, do you remember when we were first getting to be friends, and you used to ask people if they had braces before? Yeah, that's, that's so uncomfortable, uh, how gimmicky my whole life was. Yeah, it seems to work for you, though. Yeah. I, I, in some ways, maybe, but I think that the whole general idea of of sort of using salmonship as a brand for life is 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 has is a net bad. Jason, have you ever worked in the field of sales? Um, I not that I can remember. I mean. I worked at Schlotsky's, but I didn't have to pitch any sandwiches or anything. I mean, so, no, <laughs> not really. How long, have you, <laughs> how long have you been in the market for a sandwich? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not really, I, don't think I don't think I would do very well at it, but. I'm guessing you would, Jason, because last time we were talking about why the church had such a hard time selling what seemed to be a, a knockout concept. And and then Jason uh, uh, just articulated the the, the tenets, not the tenets, of the faith in such a way that made me really want to buy in. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Thanks. I wouldn't yeah, but there was also the other news. What? Shucks? I was just wondering, yeah, the etymology of it. Um, of the three of you, how many are sitting in front of the computer? Unless you count my phone, not me. Not me. Not me. Well, I'll Google it then. That's one of Craig's okay. best lines, actually, is when when we wonder something out loud and Craig says, if only there was a way that we could find this out in seconds. Do <laughs> you have to do anything with it? With oysters or no? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, it, it's I'm just hoping you did. Guessing, 
such a weird <laughs> thing to to say when you've been complimented is shucks. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. On the other side of pitching the gospel, though, there is the side of um, you have to die. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, that makes it Yeah, there's a lot that surface unattractive about it. But uh, the death is uh, uh, an end to a means, right, of of something uh, of actual life. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it could be actually... Oh, wait, what? You're answering about shucks? Yeah, I think it's fun. So you guys know what it means to, to shuck some corn or something like it. It's the husk or the pot or the shell mm-hmm. that you take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're saying, oh, shucks, what you're saying is all of the compliments, all of my efforts, they're, they're just they're, they're something valueless. It was shucks to me. It, it was a net worth of shucks. It's not even worth keeping. It's the stuff that falls to the ground. Uh, uh- my righteous acts are filthy rags. Yeah, exactly. Jason, you want to pick up for now? Yeah, Jason, I think anything, uh, anytime there's a sale going on, there's some kind of spending. Of course, the dying would be the biggest expenditure uh, you could ever ask for someone in exchange for a product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that some of the... Uh, Maybe that, I mean, to me, I guess maybe that's some of the appeal also, though. It could be. I guess that, that kind of, maybe kind of have to come to a point where that has to be some of the appeal also, is the the dying to yourself. What's the term you're using? I'm sorry? Uh, it sounded like you Who are you asking, Mitchell? Uh, Jason, it sounded like you were using a term I wasn't familiar with. Some of the what? Uh, the dying to yourself that, like that might actually be some of the appeal to the gospel, too, because... Oh, the appeal to the gospel. I mean, yeah, well, because you're... It's it's something worth dying for, I guess. And so when you get that... Because you're dying for something all the time. Like, the moment you're born, you're dying. And so whatever you're spending time on, you're dying for it. So it's kind of... When you get that, I guess, realization that... um, It's kind of all there is. And then... uh. And all the other things aren't really worth dying for. It's, I guess that maybe that's the that that needs to become the appeal of it. Also, maybe the the sales pitch, the dying to it, actually mm-hmm. needs to be part of the sales pitch in a way. Over. If it's if, if it's not, I guess it's sort of a, a, a sleight of hand. It's a, a a con if you don't give all the details then. Yeah. Yep, yep. Craig, I'm going to point at you and, and have you give our next comment. You know, I think I've been lucky in life in that I've never I've never been personally <clears throat> conned or feel like anyone's stolen from me or uh, wronged me. And when I say this, I mean strangers. I've never had a stranger do me wrong in any really serious way that I can think of. Is that true for you guys or no? It feels rare. Yeah, that seems really rare. That that's not true for me. Is that true for you, Jason? No, I don't think so. Um, but I mean, looking back now, it's just uh, 
the, all those those things are usually I don't know. It's just not justifiable. And from my, uh, I guess from where I'm at now, I'm just like I don't I don't I, I used it as excuses to become very cynical and, and hateful towards people. And I'm like, no matter what anybody did to me ever, I don't think it's justifiable for me to go down that path of hating humanity because that's really where it started to go. Was I just started to just hate. I hated humanity, not not uh, not individual people, like not you know my close personal family or closest friends or something, but like humanity in general. I just kept seeing as more and more uh, perverse and uncorrupt and and uh, unredeemable. And so I don't think anything anybody does to do me wrong gives me the the right or justifies me to to do that. I guess in a way heard that being cynical is the intermediate step between being naive and being trusting. Ooh. Huh. Amen. Where'd you hear that? <laughs> I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Mitch, no, I didn't think I, that that little... Oh, go ahead, Craig. I want to hear what you're going to ask, Mitch. Mitch, do you think that that little quote is generally true? Uh, I was... I was having a a slower time probably than you, sort of wrapping my head around it. Um, The punchline is that it's uh, it's kind of an in between. Like it's there's people that are cynical and you can fault them for that, but being cynical is better than being naive. But it's it's something less than actually offering out your hand in trust, knowing the danger. Yeah. That's actually really cool to distinguish between naivety and, and trusting others. Uh, I, I guess everyone sort of starts trusting everyone, I mean, in theory, and then they get burned in their cynics, and then eventually they see the, the virtue in, in trusting others, and they're not out of being naive, but on principle. Good people. Oh. I suspect you think that's why... That's why, because that act of trust is so profound, that is that is the reason that the trail is pictured at the bottom of Dante's hell. Say that again. I've heard people suggest that there's something really fundamental about the act of trust and that, that naive versus cynical versus trusting thing. And that's why there's so, there's something really fundamental about that, and that's why Dante puts betrayers at the bottom of hell. Is the bottom the worst part? Yes. Yeah. So you descend from layer to layer to layer to layer, and, and at the very core, you discover uh, the man who works hard to gain the trust of someone so that he can betray the person for the joy of betraying them. Oh, that's pretty twisted. <laughs> yeah. Let's do our best to not be that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's something to that, though, because that's uh, the, the weird, uh, like, kind of thread that runs through Judas and uh, Antichrist or whatever, the son of perdition, in a way, uh, that be- that betrayal. Jesus calls him, well, he calls him my friend, but he also calls him my betrayer. And you have to be both, I guess, in a sense, but... Can't, can't really be betrayed by an enemy. So, um, but I think there's a whole psalm about that that uh, um, 
Peter quotes in the book of Acts, and it's kind of a whole, a whole psalm about uh, kind of, yeah, that the betrayer or that enemy that betrays and stuff. I can't remember what psalm it is, though. Uh, not off the top of my head. Over. <laughs> when I was growing up, I heard people say that all things that are evil are equally evil. Like, there's not like a hierarchy of evil. There's just evil. Mm-hmm. You guys think that's mm-hmm. true? Uh, Jason, are you saying yes, I've heard that, or yes, I think that's true? Do you think it's I true? have heard that? Um, oh, well, I've heard that. I don't, I personally, I don't know that that's, I don't know that I believe that's true anymore. I think the wages of it is like that it's all, um, there's going to be a, a, a separation between you and God or, you know, the, um, because I, I mean, I think what's that past in Galatians? Like he who doesn't murder, but does commit adultery, you're still breaking the law. You're still defiling your own conscience. You're still, uh, putting that separation between you and life basically. Um, and so I think it is true in that sense, but at the same time, I think, um, that, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I do. There, there's. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure where to go with that. I, I don't know that I believe that that's true anymore. It seems like, and it seems like it's true. Jason, Jason I, I think that you're correct. I do not think it's true. I think it is the case that whoever keeps the whole law except for one part is guilty of breaking all the law. I think that's that's absolutely the case. But certainly it's worse to steal ten dollars than it is to steal two dollars. Well what's the utility of having a hierarchy of evil things if the consequences are all the same? So if we had a, a, le- a legal system, for example, that would put you in prison for five years if you stole something and five years if you uh murdered ten people. Yeah, don't do that. Definitely don't well, do that. What, what, would be the, what would be the utility of a hierarchy? What Would there be anything meaningful about a hierarchy of evilness if the punishment was always the same? Or the consequences? No, and, and the punishment ought not be the same. I think we're saying, yeah, I think you and I agree on that morally. The punishment ought to match the crime. Or Maybe the, the hierarchy is sort of like realistically merciful. Um, what do you mean by that, Mitchell? I don't know. I, I sort of jumped into it too fast, but uh, if if we all sort of take it for granted that we're going to err, uh, it, it's just the things at the top of the list is like on the bottom, at the bottom of hell there, you've got people who have willfully like strategized to do something evil. Uh, and you're going to think of that and Mercifully, think of that as different from someone uh, who had a lapse of judgment or made a an error. Can I ask a question? I think that might play into it because here's where I think I'm kind of struggling a little bit. Is a uh, um, is there a difference? Because to me, there I guess personally, I would think there is. But to, I'm going to ask you guys: Is there a difference um, between like a mistake and a sin? Does that, does that make sense? Like, w- willfully, like you were talking about, Mitchell, like, there's, like, a, a willful um, desire to just c- commit the most, like, the worst evils at the bottom of hell. 
But then there's people that just, like, unwittingly, like, will just mess up. And so there seems to me to be a difference between that. But would you call them all a sin? Or or would you call one a sin and the other a mistake or something? Or how would how would you go about that? I think that your distinguishing is appropriate, Jason. Uh, so if someone sticks $2 in my pocket that belongs to the host of the party and I walk out with it, that's different than me intentionally picking up the $2, sticking it in my pocket and walking out with it. In both cases, I've sinned against the host of the party. I've stolen the $2. And that's less bad than stealing $10. Uh, but certainly there's a willfulness and a, an intentionality in the latter that doesn't exist in the former. And, and like you point out, certainly that means something. So I agree with you, Jason. Mitchell, Craig, either of you next. I don't have a an articulated, systematized matrix of classifying evil. But generally, my feeling is that we have a really good sense of where to where to put some particular instance of evil based on how damaging it was and how intentional it was. Mm-hmm. That's at least what I do unconsciously. So yeah. you would agree with Jason and agree with me, then, Craig, that, that there really is a difference between the willful sin and the unintentional sin, even if in, in quantity and in particularities they're identical. We probably agree about that. It seems to me that we probably don't agree on, in the sense that you said before that the something like the wages of all sin is roughly the same. You have the same punishment. And I think that seems, I think that takes away, if that's what you believe at a fundamental level, it feels like that takes away the the possibility of having a hierarchy of evil. Hmm. I'll happily respond. Mitch, uh, Jason, you don't mind that I just respond, right? No, okay. So what I'm what I have in mind is from James, and in James he says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of the law. Or the one who said, "Do not commit adultery," has also said, "Do not murder." Of course, he's talking about God. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've still broken the law. And in that section, just before he gets into that part, he he's reminding us that if you fulfill the law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Uh, so, so when I'm highlighting that, I'm attempting to say to Jason, yes, Jason, you're correct. Whether my sin is stealing $2 or whether my sin is stealing $10. In both cases, the pride that has led me to manifest in the sin of thievery, that that pride is an offense to God and causes separation from a living God. And ultimately, if I'm not repentant of it, will cause me to spend eternity in hell. So in that way, I'm saying, yes, Jason, I agree with you. Ultimately, they, they are the same. 
But I want to clearly say that they're very different. Stealing $2 is different than stealing 10 Stealing 10 causes far more harm to the person you steal from than stealing 2 In fact, about five times the amount of harm. That's where, see, I don't know, like, that's where I'm not sure. I don't know that I would totally agree with that. I guess because I, um, and maybe that example, maybe it's just the example, because, like, the $2, $10 thing, to me, I'm just like, that's still betrayal, one way or the other. Like, you're still stabbing somebody in the back, and so I'm like, well, well what if you stole ten, two dollars and the guy's got, you know, uh, I, I don't know, what if you stole $10 and the guy has 100 and then you stole $2 and they only have 5 I'm like, it's not, I, I mean, I guess we could, like, make all the weird little comparisons, but I guess the intent of it, I guess, is what, to where it kind of almost seems the same thing to me. It's the, the intent of the heart just seems like, uh, of a, a willful um like desire to just is maybe not not even maybe it's not a desire to hurt that person but just a casting aside of what of what you might do to that person more so than just taking a dollar from them and it's the fact that you're that you're actually when I mean, you're stealing from somebody like that you're actually betraying them and it's not it's not really just i mean it's not even about money like uh, who cares about money it's the the fact that you're yeah, stabbing him in the back in a way and betraying their trust. And so then, then how can you? I mean, you can't. Then you can't restore that relationship without, without some type of forgiveness. Once that trust is broken. Correct. And so maybe we could. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, interestingly, I think there there can be all kinds of examples uh, when you're talking about a hierarchy of. of crimes and punishments, but uh, in the end, um, it does seem, I think, I think this, Craig might have been saying this earlier, it does seem that we, we tend to, to know what we're dealing with when we're, when we, when we are presented with it. So we tend to know where to categorize things and where to place them. This is this level, this is horrible, this is like, ah, not great, and so on. Yeah. Are you sure about that, Mitch? It it seems like uh, Jason and I just disagreed. It seems like Jason is saying, Michael, there's not a big difference between $2 and $10. And I'm saying, there's well, I think, a five-fold difference. Yeah, I think that, well, I guess maybe that's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just an example I'm just going Because, I mean, if I want to throw in some, like, more atrocious thing, if you could say, like, well, what's stealing $2 or murdering somebody? Like to me, yeah, I'm like that seems like a, a larger difference than than the than the the money, I guess, Amen. comparison. And so, um, yeah, maybe I don't know. But then at the same time, I'm like I I, I think maybe it's the route too. And I guess that's where I, maybe I'm getting hung up on the the intent of it is the uh, what does it say in Romans? Like, because well, in James you said he who he who is uh, breaks the law, right, is convicted by the law and is guilty of all. And then in Romans it says, I was alive without the law. So it's kind of like, um, in James it also says, if you know to do good and do it not, to him it is sin. So I guess that's kind of what I'm thinking is if if I were grown, like I could be in some like tribal area in a remote tribe and that's where I grew up and I've just always grown up and known that this other tribe was evil and then what if I went out and I just, Using a bow and arrow and shot one of this other tribe members, and I had no idea that that thing was actually wrong. And then later, 
come to find out, hey, murder's terrible, even in that even in that sense or something, like would like then that conviction would come, but before that would I be judged as that being a sin? Because it's not a willful um in intent to do to do wrong or do harm in a sense, I guess. Uh yeah. does that even make sense? That's probably a terrible example yeah. for me to use. <laughs> One one angle we could take on this, you hear people say sometimes that a difference between two things is either a difference of kind or a difference of degree. So you could say it's a different it's a different kind of evil, or it's just a different degree of evil. And it sounded, Jason, when you when you objected to what Michael said about two dollars versus ten dollars, it sounded like you were saying that sounds like a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. Whereas somebody accidentally, let's say, uh, hurting his 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 friend is a different. Sounds like it's a different kind of evil than torturing somebody willfully. And I'm curious, just just to know what would everybody say if we say you accidentally uh, you accidentally stole someone's wallet versus you tortured someone? Is are those are those types of evil different? By kind or by degree? My answer is by kind. I'm with Greg on this. Yeah, that's a good distinction to make. I think I would say this. Yeah, I think I would. I think I would be agree with that. Also, I guess I'm just wondering now, like the with that intent and how. Like you, how you mentioned at the beginning of this, betrayal being at the bottom of hell, basically, in the, the taking someone's trust and then just absolutely severing it and destroying the trust. Um, I guess I just say, think I'm thinking like even if it was just me stealing someone's wallet intentionally, if it was like, hey, so I got it was a friend of mine and I just while they weren't looking, just stole their wallet. And they find out. I'm just and then. The like you said, the pride of heart, and for me not to care, it's like then that the relationship's severed, it's destroyed, the trust is destroyed, and then if the, I'm unwilling to repent about it and unwilling to see where that I'm wrong and actually what I did, it just seems like the tra- trajectory of that could easily lead me to the the lowest. If I kept desiring that and was like, I don't care, I'm just going to keep going on this path of betrayal, I don't really see why I wouldn't end up torturing somebody. Like, I just, it just seems like it'd be the bottom of hell. Like, you're just walking that way to me, I guess. I I put a huge, huge emphasis on, like, on trying, on honesty, though. Like, and maybe that's a fault of mine in a way, but... Are you saying that although those two things might, those two types of evil might be different in kind... The difference is very small. Or um, there's a. It sounds like well, that's the difference is a slippery slope. There's a slippery slope I, I, type thing to what you're saying. Yeah, well, I, there may I, there might be a difference in kind between being like between torturing someone and uh, and stealing their wallet, but then at the same time, I mean, you're still. I don't know. You might. I mean, you could even argue you're torturing them mentally or something. Or, but it's just. Uh, I guess. The, I guess where I was saying like the just the being honest is like when you don't have honesty, like the, uh, I mean I've my mom's gotten on to me before. Well, most 
people in my family kind of get on to me when I say it because I, I've said before, like, if you're a liar, you're a worthless person. And, like, and most people don't like when I say that. But for some reason, I just keep saying it. And I'm like, if you're a liar, you're a worthless person. But that, I know there's degrees to that. And I've been a liar before. But if you're actually committed to being a liar, you're absolutely worthless because not anybody can trust you. Like, the worth of your being and your existence is complete. Like, nobody can rely on you. Nobody can put any value or stock in anything you say or do if you're 100% committed to lying lying and betraying people. And so I guess that's where I'm like, the the willful intent to steal someone's wallet is more just than stealing their wallet. If you're, if you're, maybe that's where it is kind though, because if you're doing it out of desperation because you're starving, I guess that's one thing. But then if you're doing it just to betray the person, um, seems, I, I don't know, it just seems like that's, there's something really, I don't know, really, really twisted about that to where I, I feel like there's the the evil layered beneath that is not far off from from those other evils we think of to be more atrocious, I guess. And may, maybe I'm stretching that, or I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with it, all this. I'm, you know, just kind of talking out loud. <laughs> so it will be easy to get lost in a, a litany of examples, but uh, perhaps it it's uh how your the lack of a better word, how your your heart is postured it ends up being uh the real kicker because regardless yes. of, of what it is your you end up whatever what evils you end up succeeding in doing, uh you know, there may be a number of things that get in the way of the evil that you'd like to do or would have done otherwise. But uh it, the way, the what you're desiring is very significant. Well, it's, I mean, I know it sounds bad for me to say that, but I mean, on a personal level, like there was one time my sister Natalie, uh, Craig, you even walked with us there one time at that park where I used to go walk. And there was one time Natalie was going to come out and meet me out there. And I just wanted like to get out there a little ahead of time and like so I could read a little bit on my own before that. But I told her I'd tell her when I got there. And so I just got there and walked for a little bit. And then I just basically just lied to her. I mean, you could say there's a little white lie or something, but I just lied. And then said that, like, I waited, you know, walked for like half an hour, then told her I just got there and she should come meet me. And then she asked me later, or somehow it came up, and then that I had done that. And it was just like, man, I don't, it just like ruined me. And it's, because it's like, well, then every time after that, she would have to be, to betray that trust, it's like every time after that, she'd kind of be wondering, even if it's just little things, it's like, is my brother being honest with me? Or is he fudging this a little bit? You know, it's just, I, I don't know. It's just, I mean, I don't mind when I hear other people do stuff like that, or I don't really mind when that happens to me. It's not like I get mad at the person or anything, because that, there's, I mean, there's, stuff like that happens all the time you know where people make little white lies or something but it's just kind of when I when I did it to my sister I was just like you know now it's that betrayal of trust it's like without me actually apologizing being repentant and asking her to forgive me of that and without me actually changing and saying within myself I'm never going to do that again 
it's like she would I just kind of would leave her with this this like wall between us of this that I mean I don't know if she's thinking in her head I can't trust my brother you know just over some little trivial lie I felt like telling I mean it's I don't know and so even in that minor 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 I guess it'd be a minor example especially compared to like murder or something else but it just seems like if I would have not would have just shrugged that off and been like I'm just gonna keep being selfish and I'll just keep doing this whenever I want to and just not really care when I lie here or there and keep I mean it just it would absolutely destroy relationships and then just keep perpetuating it. and I don't know how you I feel like you just end up in a place of hell psychologically at least uh, you're you're stuck with yourself <laughs> just does that sounds like the worst place for me to be especially when you become that that person and then you're and then you don't have anybody else around you and then you're stuck with yourself and you're that person it's like well yeah that sounds like somewhat like hell <laughs> but I know that I don't want to reduce hell to that or anything, but I guess it's my thought is I don't, I don't know. I don't want to come off too strong on that to where, cause I know when I say things like that, people think like, Oh, better. I think maybe that goes through people's head. Oh, I better never even be slightly dishonest with Jason or I'll never get forgiveness. And it's like, that's not what I mean at all. Like I know I'm, I'm totally capable of lying and I've been a liar plenty of times before. I guess I just mean that if that's your intent and your desire, and you could just will, care carefree liar. Um, it's just hard for anybody to trust you. I don't know. It's hard for it's hard for anybody to have a relationship with you and or me or you know. Sorry, not say you, but mm. so I I just sorry. I'm kind of trying to not derail the subject too much and get it back over on. I guess where where I kind of spilled into all of that is just I the little. The little betrayals don't seem too far off from the big betrayals to me, I guess. Could I say something about that? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead, Craig. Well, Michael, when I was suggesting it seemed like we disagreed earlier, uh, you, you mentioned a passage, and I wouldn't dispute the fact that that is the passage or that that's a reasonable interpretation of the passage. But my sense is that an interpretation like that strikes a lot of people as deeply unfair uh, because it doesn't it doesn't treat different types of evil differently, or at least I, and I don't want to I don't want to straw man your position, um, right? But uh, it, it's an indication to me because because a lot of people sense that it's not a very robust representation of whatever the truth might be. Uh, it's a big misgiving that people have about Christianity, and I'm I'm not really I, I lean towards uh, feeling that less misgivings about something like Christianity would be a good thing, and that we we kind of we all need something organized that we can agree about, you know, so we can all kind of have an, an agreement about what's evil and what to do about it and what should be done. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of the fact that that is really problematic to people, and even even us, who I think all of us are relatively similar in in worldview, don't seem to Can share. Can I propose a, a, yeah. a solution and then give the the talking stick back to you? Let it rip. 
also, um, it's helpful to remember that when when James is talking about infractions against the law and the breaking of the law, and when we as systematicians take our biblical theology and, and put it into a system so that we can understand the, the whole scripture, it is the case that that Christians think there is a heaven and a hell. Admittedly, there are some Christians who don't think there's a hell. Famous among them is Ben Carson. Uh, most of the Adventists are currently annihilationists. So that's a thing. Hopefully we don't take that route of trail. Where I land and where the vast majority of Christianity present day and overwhelmingly historically lands is that there really is a, a real hell that which conscious people endure. And that is a sense of being in the wrath of God. And so when we have a sin and infraction against the law, James is trying to help us to understand that that infraction has a penalty before a just God. And either he's going to pay that penalty, you stole the $10, it really got stolen. So either he's going to pay it on the cross, or you're going to pay it in either this life or the life to come. And the presumption of Christians is that the unrepentant sinner continues not repenting after he or she dies. And so they continue sinning, and they continue keeping more and more coals on their head of various kinds and of various degrees, but nonetheless just causing greater and greater wrath or righteous judgment, depending on the term you prefer, to fall upon them. Can I intercept the talking stick? Oh, man, it's yours, Mitch. Oh, keep going, brother, if you weren't finished. No, I was going to say back to Craig, so you're perfectly done. (laughs) I want it to go to Mitch. Thanks, guys. Uh, I I, I wonder, even if if someone weren't uh, thinking of sort of an afterlife, if people have, you're saying that there's a misgiving with that text, uh, because people can't seem to understand why every every crime would uh, fit the same punishment. Uh, I, I don't think in this lifetime that any Christian suggests that any human should enact the same punishment across the board. So, if the if the the concept of of God's final judgment. Uh, were non-issue to you because of, of disbelief, which I think would be the case of people who had misgivings with Christianity, um, or then it, it wouldn't really matter because the the <clears throat> the pragmatic implications of that are just that all sin is destructive to to a person. Um, and so it still becomes. It, it, I just. I, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding why someone would have a misgiving about it. Maybe one way to say it is that uh, a weakness of Christianity, as I see it, is that there's a lot of interpretive obstacles that you have to clear before things seem reasonable. So if I'm just mm. coming across these ideas for the first time, and I get the sense that 
the most just being thinks that there's there's one punishment for any given crime because that's the way it appears. And you have to do a, a lot of digging before you can reach maybe a richer richer understanding of that uh, of that idea. I think it's a major weakness that it's that that obstacle is so so immediate and that there are multiple obstacles like that. I I think I would um agree with you. I wasn't first of all I wasn't like I don't know if it came across that way, but I guess I wasn't trying to intend to say that that I think uh the degrees of punishment are the same you know, for for all of that. Um, but I don't know that, that that obstacle you're talking about, like, um, that there's one overall punishment for every sin. Like, that's not what I was trying to say, but I don't know that that even... Does that come from Scripture, or is that just kind of what we've developed through interpretation? Is that... would You, you would probably know more about that, Michael. Um, is, is that more of just, like... Uh, what a consensus we've come to, or is that an actual scriptural uh, thing? So here's an example. First Corinthians six says, "Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Whether it's sexual immorality, or whether it's idolatry, or adultery, or practice of homosexuality, or thieving, or greed, or drunkardness." or reviling, or swindling, none of it will allow you to inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 is a bit of irony. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the implication is, if you are not repentant, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So for these various kinds of sin, there is a shared punishment non-inheritance the kingdom of God. So in that way, it is it is the same. So whether I lie to Jason or kick him in the shins or steal from him, various kinds of sins against Jason, I will have broken fellowship with Jason and I will have his just wrath, his judgment towards me. And likewise with God. When we sin against God, whether that's idolatry or drunkardness or swindling, when that happens, we have a shared consequence of broken fellowship. So in that way, they're the same. Uh, but in, in a lot of other ways, it's certainly not the same. Certainly the penalty for sexual morality is different than the penalty for greed. Uh, Why do you think... ultimately, yes, they result in broken fellowship, just wrath, and eternal torment. But Why do you think that if that is the, the sort of ultimate eternal paradigm that God presents a different paradigm when he's uh, offering the law to, to humankind. Uh, I think it's because of that stuff that Jason said. Like this, this is a slippery slope. While there is a very various degrees of sin, while there are various degrees of sin, there are various kinds of sin, and we can even rank order the horrificness of sin, the evil of sin, it is the case that given enough time, you slip from one to the other. Yeah, you make some progress in regressing up towards righteousness. But ultimately, if you're not repentant, you're, you're just going to slide further and further and further. So when you multiply the time scale a few millennia, suddenly you're, you're in the same horrors that 
the most terrific among us get to even more so? It's just not a suitable answer or uh, a little shy for you. Uh, I, I sort of see what you're saying, but then it it makes me think that the the punishment acts as a, a, a sort of course correction from total destruction. Does that seem fair to say? Amen. That's the goal. But so then when you some of the dollars from me, and I force you to pay it back. I'm hoping that you don't steal ten dollars from Craig. I want you to give up receiving because I want you to inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. You know, it's just. Is- Go ahead, Mitch. No, you keep it up. Well, I've heard the the slippery slope situation uh, that that kind of that idea put forth that given enough time, you will destroy yourself with however small of a sin you're committing. And I I recognize that that sounds uh, that sounds appealing and it, it it sounds credible, but I I don't really have any. If I think about it for more than a couple of seconds, I don't. I don't know that I have any reason to really feel that that's got got a lot of substance to it. You might imagine that if someone lives for six thousand years, uh, they have a lot of time to shift all over the map, and 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 that they might become hopelessly addicted and sinful and evil, and they might reform themselves, and they could they could pinball around. I. I I don't really have any reason to believe that it would be the way that we described. You don't tend to think that they would have a trajectory one direction or another, up the stairs or down the stairs, admittedly yo-yoing along the stairway. Well, <laughs> you don't tend to think that it's one direction or the other. Well, surely there's local there's local trajectories. There's no I don't think anybody would dispute that. But to to, to think that a a trajectory is uh, unrecoverable, I think, is silly. No way. You think you can't get past the point of no return? <laughs> In this hypothetical, we're imagining that I live for 10,000 years and living living in a world much like it is right now. That I, I don't think that there's people who are... Uh, I don't think there's such a thing as too far gone, or I don't. I shouldn't say that I believe that, but I should say I don't have any good reason to believe otherwise. Well, I think you do, because we see it happen on a micro scale all the time. Uh, we may not have the omniscience to say when that point is from our perspective, but people do reach a, a point of no return, and, and you know, uh, actually destroy themselves with with the trajectory that they've taken. That's true, but we also we also use those local trajectory changes as an example of an example of hope to people to say you can change trajectory. We mm-hmm. have a, I I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about someone they know that was in prison for something horrible and they changed their life around. Somebody who mm-hmm. really looked like their course was uncorrectable and they corrected it. They weren't past the point of no return, thankfully. So we we tend to use that <laughs> that mechanic in both directions. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Here's both a question. Right? When I say Sorry, both directions, I mean I mean there seems to be a sense in Christianity or in Christian culture that given enough time, your trajectory can bring you to a place 
where you can't course correct. And then we say all the time, anybody can course correct. And uh, people I, I seem to believe they're both true. I, I think they are both true. And I think the way that they're both true is, uh, it, it, I mean, it just lies in the fact that we don't know what it is. At, at any point when I'm participating in destructive behavior, I'm, I'm putting my soul or we might say my life at, at hazard. And it, it's not clear if there will be a chance for me to course correct. Uh, although we should always say to a person participating in destructive behavior that y- you do have a chance. We can't know that for a fact, but uh, it's 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 a hopeful way of of living. When you say you can't know that for a fact, Mitchell, you mean that there are some people you might tell you actually have a chance of, for reform for whom that's not true? I think so. I think we just we don't have the the perspective to to know okay. if a person's reached that point or not. Huh. Uh Jason, what were you gonna comment? Oh, I just um I don't know. I guess maybe I disagree with all of that. I don't know that there is a point where someone can't course correct. I would say they always can. Um I think well I I guess I say that but then maybe once um uh let me see if I can explain this. Uh I well first of all, I guess I kind of I figure there's going to be a chance for post death repentance. I don't know if that's true or even biblical. Um but I would think if if the if Sheol and hell is a place of torment, conscious torment and uh, you're being like constantly tormented by the all the evil you did in the world, had done in the world, then there's a time in Revelation where all that stuff, hell, everything, casts up the dead to be judged again, and then whatever is not redeemable is cast in a lake of fire. Um, and so, I definitely don't know here and now how I could say to anybody that they're beyond repair. Um, even even people like i mean i'm i even take the extreme in saying even hitler if he you know we assume he went down to hell and if he's been suffering there and just rolling over and in torment and play, i mean i can only imagine if if uh <laughs> if i were him and thank god i'm not cuz i could have easily been um you like just get after you die and then leaving your body and having that awakening of what you've done and then you're just constantly tormented by how many millions of people you murdered um and then i don't when it gets to that point of that i don't i don't know i don't know how the heart wouldn't change um i guess i guess it would have to change not for selfish reasons though not for just because hey i'm hurting here uh like maybe just for actual real remorse of what what i had done um but then, I, I I guess it boils down with me. It's hard for me. Sorry, I feel like I'm doing a terrible job explaining this. I get to me like I guess the only way I know to describe it is I I guess I'd say that the people who won't be forgiven and aren't redeemable are those that reject it for like for themselves and for others. And I think I've said this before that if I if I'm not willing to forgive somebody, then I I cut myself off from forgiveness. And if I don't accept forgiveness from God, then I cut myself off from forgiveness. Um, and and to not, and the Holy Spirit is um, a forgiving spirit. 
And so for me to just say, I want, I want to have nothing to, to do with forgiveness. I don't need it for myself and I don't want to give it to other people. To me, that's when, when that, a person makes that decision in their heart as just really, really hardening themselves completely with that decision, um, then I think they'd be unredeemable. But I don't know how you can discern when somebody really does that. Can you actually Exactly, you can't. No, I don't think so. And I should clarify, I don't think there's a, a, a specific a kind or degree of, of wrongdoing that, that puts you past the point of no return. I just simply think that you don't know how many times you can stick your hand in the snake's hole before oh, yeah. it bites you. For some, it may be ten times. For some, it may be four. And we don't have that the omniscience to know. So we should always say, hey, you, you can change. You cannot put your hand in that hole again. Or you can take your hand out of that hole. But uh, there there is a point of no return where the snake has suddenly bit you. Yeah. But even if it's false hope, you ought to extend the hope and call people to repent, even if they will not. Is that what you're saying, Mitchell? Uh, I think so. Wait, sorry, what was that last thing? Uh, so, Craig, is you hearing all this, are you hearing the three of us mostly agree or mostly disagree? And what do you think of it? I, I couldn't say whether... <laughs> well, let me let me just do a, a true or false lightning round. Jason, Sorry. You believe, <laughs> Jason, you believe there there is no point of no return. True or false? Um, I believe I believe that there is. Wait, so there is no point of no return? Yes, I would I would say that's true. But to that, basically, how I just described it, I think that's the that that's the place. The point of no return when you spend time your time in hell and then the the great white throne judgment comes, the final judgment, and then you look at God and say, screw off, I still don't want to have anything to do with you. Then I think, yeah, that's the point of no return. So there is there is a point of no return. I think... Um, Unrecover. Yeah, at that point I would say yes, because I think, yeah, after after having gone through that awakening and so you live this life and you believe what you believe and then even in post-death you realize, hey, I made these mistakes in life, I didn't see things clearly, and you actually see everything and see how everything is, and then you still say, you look at God and say, I don't, I don't, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you, your, or your forgiveness, I don't need it, I don't, like, I think, I think people could maybe, I think, I think it would be rare, but I think people can come to that point of just where they'd rather, wa- they'd rather watch everything burn. And then that's when everything burns, and they get thrown in that 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 flame that consumes everything, because that's what they choose. Jason, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure you know what a lightning round is. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, sorry. I just didn't even know. I, sorry, I didn't know if I explained that correctly before. But anyway, yeah. So true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, is there a point of no return? Yes or no? Uh, yeah. Michael, what do you think? Yes, doing? there is. There's a point of no Craig, In both directions, positively and negatively. I think for those who uh, are repentant and believing, there will come a point of no return, at which point apostasy is no longer possible. So both positively and negatively. But yes, it exists. Hmm. That's a lovely thought. <clears throat> okay. Wow.
I think I'm on the same page with you guys. I'll say personally, I don't, I don't really have any reason to have a high confidence margin either way. There's one way to say, one way to describe the point of no return. I hear Christian people say things like this, and I think it's the C.S. Lewis idea is that the, the gates of hell are locked from the inside, and that people are really just unwilling to abandon whatever it is that that's afflicting them or whatever evil they've chosen. And uh, I can't get to a place where it, it actually, something like that actually withstands any kind of questioning. So I, 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 help me if you can understand how we can have any kind of confidence margin to say, given 10,000 years, given an eternity, an eternity is a long time, that somebody, even the most depraved, could change trajectory. Jason, Mitch, you want to swing first or you want to sit to me? If you have to, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, here are the, the two directions I'd point. The first one is to say that uh, Christians are necessarily people of the book. So, we look to Jesus as the one who prophesied his death and resurrection and then actually did it. And after doing it, uh, explained it. So that, that matters a lot. And Jesus sure talks about heaven and hell uh, a lot. And so that that's an unfortunate reality for those of us who would prefer to pretend that, that hell does not exist, but also simultaneously want to hold that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. So that there's the one side. If I've hook, line, and sinker, boss, I think Jesus is Lord, I think the book is true. And I'm already kind of there. Uh, the second path of point is to say, if you're rejecting all of the all of the Christianity that comes along with it, I don't think you land where Lewis lands. So if you have some type of system of reincarnation or eternal existence of the soul, if you don't have a a good divine judge who is unchanging and immutable, unless you have that, I think you're going to take the the path of some of our Hindu friends. And ultimately, we all get there. It just takes an infinite number of lifespans or an infinite number of years in the same life. Um, So I'm with you. Without Jesus, if I have an infinite life, am I going to pass a point of no return? Maybe, but maybe not. Uh, I think your ping pong or pinball metaphor is a good one. Like it, it seems that I'll bounce back and forth from morally righteous to, to morally unrighteous, although the utility of such a distinction really comes into question when you remove an immutable judge. So, so C.S. Lewis, total, total heretic, is that what I hear you say? Uh, I happen to disagree with him on hell, but no, he, he's a champion of my faith. <laughs> I'm just playing with you. Mitch, Jason. I'll, I'm probably the heretic. <laughs> I'll say that. No, I don't know. I don't know what to... <laughs> I'm not sure what I to... I love that you've been flirting with universalism. <laughs> no, I don't know if that's a good, that's a good thing to do. Um, but I don't... I don't... With the... Yeah, the universalism thing, I don't think that's a... Um, is that kind of what you're asking about right now, too? That everybody 
because you mentioned Hinduism, I guess that's kind of what they think. Everybody will get there. Um, I guess I got confused by the question a little bit. <laughs> Craig, re-ask the question. I don't think there was a formal question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question, Jason, but I think it's close right. enough. And then, Craig, you, you say yes or no. Uh, the question is, when we think about eternal lives, is it the case that we can reasonably assume there will come a point beyond which there is no return? Obviously, when it comes to finite lives, finite bodies, finite minds, yeah, there is a point of no return, especially on the negative end. But when we're thinking about 10,000 years, much, much more, uh, 100,000 years, it just seems unreasonable to assume that you couldn't return from however far you go in either direction morally, positively or negatively. Uh, Greg, is that close enough? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'll say personally, we can have opinions, and I, I, I think it's fine to have an opinion, but I don't, I don't really see any robust way of getting to a point where we can have any kind of confidence margin about it. But you know, to say you this can... is what I believe, you know, and and actually stand by it with any kind of conviction. I can't get there personally. That's why we're discounting the the microcosm too much because. Isn't this what statisticians do all the time? They interpret reality based off just a small sample. And so if we do behave in a destructive way for 60, 70, 80 years, isn't it reasonable? I mean, it just never, it never dropped that until, until we're dead. It, we like do it to our death is maybe it's not so crazy to believe. I mean, eternity is hard to even think about or talk about, but maybe it's not so crazy to think that that would, replicate itself on a on a macro scale. Mitch, I, I'm glad it gives you confidence. I think I land where Greg lands. If I don't have if I don't have uh, a belief in an immutable God who is good and not deceiving me, if I don't land there, I don't think I can get there. Then because some people to say that the first 60 years weren't horrible, but it was a redemption story, and I lived 120, and they were great. Mm-hmm. Mitch? I guess, too, some people have conceived of, of hell as a, a place just absent of God. Uh, if that's the case, maybe you, you participate destructively or exist destructively. Because uh, there's, there's no other way. You don't know anything different. To, but this is just all coming out of my mouth now. You're right that oftentimes in in modern Protestantism, we will talk about hell as being the absence of God. And that's shorthand for the absence of the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. Uh, and you're right. that That's all there. But you're certainly not absent from the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That's Greg, how can you be confident in anything? How can you say you believe anything for sure? It's, uh, Is that a real question? I, I send you a free copy of my book, Christian Nihil. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> uh, do you, uh, do you, Craig, know anything about Greg Bonson? Never heard of him. Well, you've missed out. Oh, well. Uh, 
Jason, do you want to say anything on this subject, or do you want to bring us a new subject? Uh, I, um, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm fine. I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm, Guys, I'm just, I'm just listening. Just listening. If we, uh, we're like, if we did actually have ten thousand years to have this conversation instead of like an hour and a half or two. And uh, I think we get there, like the monkeys on the typewriter arriving at Shakespeare. When get there is get there the uh, uncorrectable, uncorrectable trajectory. The point of no return. Is is the Shakespeare on the typewriter the analog of getting to a point of no return in either direction? The, the Shakespeare, the Shakespeare that I'm I'm analoging is uh, is is the the truth that we all agree on. We are the monkeys on the typewriters eventually arriving at it. You think if we talk long enough, eventually we all agree because we all come to understand the truth? Yeah, man. We had been years like that you think that. <laughs> I got a question. I think that you're correct on this matter. I don't think we'll know all things, but I think we'll certainly know this thing. All right, I, I got a question. Michael, you'd mentioned that Jesus had a lot to say about the afterlife. And it was unfortunate for some people who didn't believe in the afterlife. I've heard a lot of other people say, Jesus didn't say very much about the afterlife. And I've heard other people say even, even with more conviction and more believability, uh, the, the ancient Jews didn't have a conception of the afterlife. And what they did have, they had only after coming out of Egypt because of their uh, their mingling of their mythological ideas with the ideas that came from the book of the dead what what would what would account for the different opinions on this or maybe i'm imagining the difference of opinions oh oh the twist at the end i thought you were going to say michael what do you think on that um what accounts for the different opinions That one's a much harder question. So one of the big ones, obviously, is, is history. We, we are finite, so we don't get to read everything well. And the things that we do read, we don't remember well. And the things that we read and remember well, we don't notate well and communicate well. And all of communication is necessarily abbreviation. And, and so all of that that just goes into the field of, of history uh, is there. So with regard to Jewish belief, my understanding is exactly what you outlined. My understanding is that historically, Jews understood that Sheol was the place of darkness, the place of death, the place that you descend into below the ground where you are forgotten. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Um, With regard to the New Testament, Jesus talks a lot about Gehenna. It's the most common word for hell, uh, but it's certainly not not the only term. He also talks a lot about Hades um, and and seems to use those slightly differently, although some Christians conflate them. As for why there's differences of opinion or interpretation, uh, I think that we don't all read well and we don't all argue well. And even when we do read well and argue well, we still disagree. So, 
that's that's so, probably my best shot, even though it's not much of an answer. No, that it, it is an answer. I'm one thing I've been curious about, and I I don't have a good answer for, is that in the New Testament you have Jesus using Hades and using Gehenna, which, uh, regardless of what other connotative baggage they might have, part of that payload is they, it, it, it's it's obviously symbolic in the least, and that it's he was using them to describe an idea by referencing an analog to the idea. Given that he used two, di- given that he used two different words, and that they were uh, highly analogous in nature and not uh, not really concrete, how can we justify how can we justify a high confidence margin that what he was describing was literal? And it, and I'll leave it there. How can we, based on what we we know, how can we justify? High confidence in it's literal. He's a unique person in history. Uh, so I literally divide time based on when he was. And, and that's really how I count my years. And, and I'm with millions of other Christians who've done that too, and non Christians who've done that too. Uh, so he's significant. He, he prophesies his death and resurrection and then does it bodily. Uh, so what he says carries a lot of weight. Uh, he's not the only one talking about it. And so even in early Christianity, the Apostle Paul talks about everlasting destruction. Uh, he talks about raging fire and eternal fire. Uh, Jude, the brother of Jesus, talks about the blackest of darkness. Um, John talks about burning sulfur. He's the one who gives us lake of fire and the phrase tormented day and night forever and ever. So, so there's a lot going on that's packed in there uh, into the notion of hell as distinguished from Hades, the place of the dead, particularly those dead who are on their way to hell. Um, so that does that come anywhere close? Why Jesus? And the answer well, is because I'm, I'm a Christian. It, well, okay. from, <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I hear a lot, for the most part, Christian people seem to believe that it's literal and they seem to have a pretty unitary sense of what it is. What I mean by that is there seems to be a relative consensus of what hell is like, or at least how to conceptualize it. Maybe. Historically, that's the case in the the artwork. But how do you have fire and darkness? Right. So what I'm getting at is to say that Jesus used, used words that were analogs it sounded like you're saying the New Testament writers also used a bunch of different terms and a, diff- a bunch of different descriptions that were also uh, d- very diverse and uh, <laughs> symbolic in the least. And uh, yeah. from from our perspective, it seems like what's likely going on is they're what they're what they're doing is they're using this religious language when they say a darkness or a fire. They're describing something that's symbolic, and that these descriptions are kind of what is at the what is the last resort of language to describe something in absolute terms. But, yes. So I suspect it seems very obvious that what they're describing is real, but but to mm-hmm. 
take those descriptions. Yeah, it seems very real and very bad. In fact, ultimately bad because it's the religious language is the only thing. It's like at the it's at the extreme. You can't conceptualize something worse than hell, whatever that is, and that's fine. I have a really difficult time knowing what we know about where that conception of hell originated and then saying it is a literal place that we could say is uh, anything resembling our material experience and it's that it's that it's got some kind of objective reality uh in addition to its obvious symbolic reality how can we i mean how can i get there or what are the missing pieces for me I know I've been talking a lot. Uh, I think that's because mostly Craig has been, been asking me. Craig, are you <laughs> asked broadly, or do you mind if I swing at that one, too? I, I'm meaning broadly, but I also... <laughs> I, I mean, it's, anyone, feel free to answer. I also, I, I think, have directed things to you in part because we don't talk as frequently, and so I'm curious, <laughs> curious, curious for your perspective. But I want I want I want everyone's perspective if they if they have something to share. Thanks, Mitch, and thank you, Craig, for letting me swing again. Uh, I think First Corinthians fifteen is super relevant here. So in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul kind of starts by saying, "There's this thing of prime importance, of first most importance," and then he goes on to describe what it is, and it is the death and resurrection of Jesus in accordance with the scriptures, and he was seen by over 500 people, and that claim is falsifiable. Half of them are still alive. From there, he goes on to say, there are some of you who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You don't believe that there is life after death, or at least not physical life, and probably not life at all. And he says, I understand. That's very normal. It's very popular in the Greek world right now. But we as Christians think that Jesus rose from the dead. And so I can assure you, there really is a resurrection from the dead. So I think part of what causes Christians traditionally, and even today, to maintain that the afterlife is bodily, is because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus shows up in a way that is glorified. There's also this weird experience he has on the Mount of Transfiguration, where there are other people seemingly bodily resurrected in a humanoidish body. So definitely recognizable, definitely genuinely people, uh, definitely image-bearing, but nonetheless, they seem to be glorified, technically, like past the point of sanctification. You no longer have the capacity for sin. You no longer have the effects of sin, namely finitude and deterioration and all that. And so I think that's what's prompted, in large part, Christians to say, Jesus' experience, probably Moses, probably Elijah's experience, is the experience that's been promised to us who will follow Jesus, both follow him into death and then follow him out of death, into bodily resurrection. So that while we can debate, Luther goes one way, Calvin goes another, what happens in between our earthly death and then our final glorified resurrection, we debate, am I asleep, or am I consciously in some ethereal, spiritual, cloudy space? That's debatable. What's not debatable is that at some point, after the earthly death, 
there is a, a physical bodily resurrection and that, that corporeal person takes up genuine space and genuine consciousness, whether that person is in Hades awaiting the judgment or Abraham's bosom awaiting the, the resurrection or whether that person is in heaven or hell. So I think that, that one's a big one for us. We think that, that there were some of us alive and saw Jesus bodily. We're still blind. We're still believing that 2,000 years later. And maybe we're wrong, but if so, we're the most pity of all people. So we're banking our lives on it. Sounds like a good answer. It's hard to conceptualize. It's very hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> not that, not saying I don't believe it. It's just hard to like uh, picture what that would actually look like, especially that you mentioned materialistically. I have a question kind of then along those lines because Craig was talking about hell and you were talking about the resurrection being bodily. So, and Craig even mentioned hell being a lot of times, um, it seems like like Jesus and the apostles were using um, analogies or metaphors or something almost. Um, and so, but if it's, but then we take it and we read into it very, very material uh, in a materialistic way. Do you think with the resurrection of the dead, that it will be, uh, like how, did, how does that even work? Uh, of like a bodily um, hell, I guess, a uh, material. So, I alluded to the fact that Luther and Calvin go separate ways on this in the Reformation. Uh, and I happen to go with Calvin on this. But we as Christians, we disagree, even as, as Bible-believing folks. So I think that when I die, I will have a spiritual, ethereal, cloudy-like reality, and I will actually be conscious. I'll actually be with my Lord, and I'll actually be with those believers who've gone before me into death. There's some Christians who don't think that. Luther thinks that when the Christian dies, just like the non-Christian, they go immediately into an unconscious state a state of sleep. Uh, and Paul talks about how there are some who've gone before us into sleep. I'm with Calvin. I think that's a euphemism for death and a euphemism for non-bodily consciousness, like a dream state. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I don't understand the difference. Because to me, I'm like, I don't understand where those two really contradict other than you're saying someone's conscious disappears. Because, I mean, you go to sleep now and your body... I mean, it's not, as far as I know, you're conscious still somewhere. And it's kind of like you said, in that cloudy dream state. And so even if your body went to sleep and died and you laid it in the dust, um, is he saying, is the other one saying that you just, your consciousness ceased to exist also or something? Or it's just blackness or what? I guess I'm confused. No, it doesn't cease to exist. It's just as sleepy. So like time gets all sort of weird. And like you're okay. in and you're out, and uh, so that's where Luther isn't. And those are the <laughs> Christians. We all agree, though, that regardless of what happens in the intermediary state, there is an ultimate state, namely a resurrection from the dead. So there, yeah. there will come a time when, regardless of what happens in between earthly death and bodily resurrection, 
every image bearer gets bodily resurrected. And every image bearer then gives an account for their life. And it's on full display. And they stand for judgment. And at that point, the, the sheep are separated from the goat. We are separated from the chaff. I feel like you're alluding to that. I I feel like you know a lot more about this than you're, you're letting on, or like you're or you're able to ar- even articulate. Because the fact that you use the term image bearer, uh, I don't know that 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 I think that's really profound that you use that. Like I'm I'm still trying to chew on that right now. Because <laughs> um, that that could mean you're. If I'm gathering right, you're not necessarily saying like image bearer as in just an image bearer of Christ, but an image bearer of whatever image they're they're carrying. And they're going to be resurrected and then the decision will be made then what to do with them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or Yes. Yes. Okay. I think that all people, males and females, all of us, are made in the image of God. And so that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yes. All okay. people, believers and unbelievers, are resurrected all people are found guilty with one big notable exception. And then all of that guilt is paid for either yeah. by Jesus on the cross when we are found in Christ or by us in hell. Because we pay for sin huh. and continue on sinning and paying for that yeah. sin as we accrue more and more debt every day. That's interesting. Can I, can I attempt to, like, I'm like literally chewing on this in my head and uh so can i attempt to like try to throw out some other ideas and you guys can shoot them down or give me your thoughts afterwards yeah okay um let's see i guess what i'm thinking right now is that uh i've been kind of thinking about this idea that a spirit just wants a body like it just seems like it naturally wants a body like a material way to manifest whatever spirit that might be um even like even uh like I've heard people even mention school spirit. It's like that that still wants a body, it wants a corporate body, uh, unifies and excludes. Like certain people come into the school. If you're not part of that school, you're excluded from that body. So it's just like it seems like uh that's a weird example to make, but that a spirit would actually want a body. So then even in the afterlife, um let's say I die and I'm committed to corruption and, and deeds that are corrupting habits like i'm willfully sinning um even on a minor scale like even if it's just little things i'm I'm purposely defiling my conscience and purposely like squishing jiminy cricket over and over every time he starts squeaking at me you know and just like <laughs> doing corruptive habits and so then i die and then i'm kind of giving myself to that so i'm dealing with the repercussions of that in this state of afterlife, I guess, in a sense. And then there comes a time when that state of mind is going to be resurrected again. And if that state of mind wants a body, it's like that it just it's it's corruption wants a body. Does that make sense? With that is it I don't even think I'm explaining my thoughts right. Like if if my spirit has become corruption, then when I even if I were to be given another body it would just devour it, in a sense. Great. That, that's I'm going to let you two swing at this. <laughs> Interesting idea. It, you know, the the corrupt deeds are often equated with the flesh, so it doesn't sound too unreasonable. 
it's done in the flesh. I don't know what its implications might be. <laughs> I don't know either. It's literally just like going through my head right now. I just I hadn't um thought of it that way before. Like I said, I'm trying to, and I'm probably trying to conceptualize it or like uh, make sense of it too much. Um, thoughts about the afterlife, where I'm probably just not meant to know, but and and thoughts about the resurrection of the dead. But it just seems. Um, Unless at that point, I've, I've, my desire is for life-giving spirits, like the the spirit, the spiritual things that actually give life. If I don't come to a point, whether in life or in death, where my heart changes and I desire those things, then even if, um, not saying I wouldn't desire a body, but even if I were given another body, it would just it would just resort re- revert to destruction and then um yeah i'm not even sure where i'm going with that exactly it just i guess the fact that you had mentioned that everybody would be re- resurrected bodily and i hadn't really thought about that and then um how um what what that would even look like i guess if the body were to function at its at its um full capacity and it's um and it's like i don't know it's 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 prime state it's the it's a in its original intent of design and then if that body is corrupted in any way with the i don't know i just i'm not sure what are your guys thoughts on that <laughs> any at all it's certainly interesting to think about i'm, I'm not sure what to make of it uh it, Craig, you want to swing? Well, can you guys hear me? I've been keeping myself on mute, so I, I lose track of when you can hear me and when you can't. Yeah, and, uh, we hear you. Jason, I don't know if I have anything uh, intelligible to say about your your point, except that it reminds me of that. Socratic idea of form and substance. So you you might say form, we might, for an example, use lizardness. It's like all the properties, you could call it, in your language, you would say it's the spirit of a lizard. It's all the properties that are lizardy. And then substance is actually uh, the lizard, an instance of a lizard itself. And I don't have anything really remarkable to say, but I uh, there's there's this transition between uh, that happened kind of with with Socrates and Aristotle uh, kind of took what Plato Plato and Socrates did and transformed it. But a lot of people will say that that was kind of the birth of the distinction between uh, what we call the subjective and the objective or mind versus matter, or it's this conversation we keep having about objective versus symbolic. And you could you could also suggest that that moment was the birthplace of those things as like ghosts of our imagination, the same way 
that the anthropomorphic Greek gods or prior gods had been ghosts of the imagination. The suggestion is that the, the difference between what is objective and what is subjective or what is symbolic or objective is just a ghost in our mind, that it doesn't actually have a basis in what you might call ground truth. I, I suspect those things are related, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't elaborate. Hmm. I think they're very related, also, especially to what you were commenting on, Jason, uh, because the way that you're using spirit and you're noticing the various types of spirits uh, is is really helpful. There is a school spirit that is unique and different from the spirit of the lizard or the spirit of Jason, and mm-hmm. uh, the way that. Craig is pointing out that there are, there are other spirits that get named that have certain qualities that will occasionally animate people, like the spirit of greed or the spirit of violence or the spirit mm-hmm. of even generosity, so both positive and negative spirits. Uh, I think that's really helpful. Uh, and then, of course, the way we talk about the Holy Spirit or the way we talk about the spirit of a man um, this is all very much there. So, yes, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something really frustrating. Did somebody? I, I I feel like I cut somebody off, and I don't speak now or forever hold your peace. I suppose is what I'm saying. I don't think I was cut off, or Mitchell, or Jason. Over. Jason, do you think you were cut off? <laughs> no, no, go for it. No. Okay, good. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something horrible, which is I'm going to reference something that Jason and I talked about, and I don't think anybody else knows about, but it's related. (laughs) Jason and I had a conversation uh, that you just reminded me of, Michael, and that was that Jason and I both identify with elements of our personality uh, that are operating independently. Mitchell might be uh, familiar with this uh, in the form of a metaphor that says, my human body is like a ship that there's all these sub-personalities that are members of the crew that are warring simultaneously for control of the steering wheel. So yeah. if I if I have to <laughs> if I want to go to the bathroom or eat, that's one aspect of my personality or there's another one that might really enjoy let's say talking about theology or there might be one that enjoys playing basketball, and these are all different sub-personalities. They're spirits, let's say, that are occupying the body and fighting for control of the body. Uh, Jason, Jason, uh, uh, well, to maybe cap it off, I'll just say, uh, (laughs) Jason Jason is describing how he's got this sub-personality that was kind of like a gold miner or a prospector or something, and it was the Jason, do you want to talk about what the prospector is? What is the spirit of the prospector that that um, inhabits your body? I then, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's that that search for truth. The best way I know to describe it, and I think um, I think it's always been there, but I think it's a it's that it's that weird digging down for wisdom, like uh, and willing to go into the the dark recesses where like. I guess I, or where like most people don't go, I guess. Um, and that, uh, there's a verse, there's a passage actually that I, I didn't think about when we were on the phone, 
when we talked before, Craig, but uh, it's in Job, and it says, like, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. And it actually kind of describes that whole process of, like, just digging down into the dark recesses of the earth to search for truth and wisdom and things like that. And so there's this weird, like, uh, the it's been fun. It's been so much fun, like, since Craig brought it up. But actually, like, trying to identify these different um, things in inside of me and outside of me and trying to be honest with them to their real nature and create characters for them in a way. Um, and it's, so that one, there seems to be like a prospector side because Craig had mentioned that he's kind of identified in an astronomer. Um, and it's, and the, the interesting thought to me was that, uh, I felt like I resonated more with the prospector rather than the astronomer because when I go look at the stars, I'm not, I'm not looking at them through a telescope. I'm not trying to pull them close to me. Like, it's more like I, if I were to personally look at them, it's more to, I'm not, it's it's weird. It's like, I'm not trying to pull out these, to make the heavens, like, to, to look into them as much as have them, like, more just affect me and make me, and just just produce a, a kind of a, a spirit of wonder. I'm not, like, looking at it as I would, like, but then with the prospector character, it's like I would dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. If there was if there was a promise of like wisdom or truth or value um, in the in the dark heart of the earth, in a way, so that's kind of I guess where where we had that conversation. And it was just interesting um, finding characters, I guess, and then giving them names and identifying their character traits. Do you want to say any of yours, Craig, or explain the astronomer more? Or <laughs> no, I felt that I felt like that was a good recap. I, maybe yeah. what it was that, uh, Michael, maybe what you said that tipped it off was a suggestion. I don't think you said this, that we're occupied by spirits of things that are immortal, perhaps, or that the way we might say ancient people or ancient people might say that they were occupied or possessed by a demon. Or a god. Or a god. Uh-huh. Yeah. There are analogs that we can understand, although those are kind of ghosts of our our own mythos that we don't actually, we don't really have those culturally. Correct. Could, and I think they I were in a much one? healthier oh. place for having them. Yeah. I admit. Oh. Okay. Oh, my bad. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, another one, because I think, like, where, like, how it kind of tied in was that we kind of, even going back to where a spirit kind of wants a body, like even the spirit of greed, like wants, so I, that's what's just weird to me. It like wants to manifest in the material realm. It wants to, there's this physical desire of, of it becoming, even with greed, it, it wants to become that bottomless pit, that gaping hole, that consuming spirit. Um, but even the, the thought of like characters, like greed is an interesting one because it seems like that one feels like it could be internal. Like, there's a part of me that, like, or or I can find that within myself where I need to make sure that that one's not driving the ship, like Craig said. But then there seems to be other ones that are outside. And one I was thinking about in particular is fear. Um, that doesn't necessarily seem to be inside. Um, and maybe I'm alone on that, but what do you guys think about that? Um, 
I'm I'm tempted to feel like even greed, it's hard to say that it originates inside of yourself because it's not unique to you or me. It's something that we all have in common. It's a spirit yeah. that is eternal in that way. Yeah. So I'd hesitate to say that almost any of them, or I would hesitate to say that any of them at all originate in us, but they're all yeah. eternal in a sense. Bitch, what huh. do you think? I don't know. Um, I guess my mind's looking for. Uh, I, it, there's, I guess, several different ways of explaining the the concepts of of what we have inside of us. If it's if it's a, a prospector or astronomer or a ship full of a crew or uh, a, a spirit that's looking for a body, I, I don't know what the best way or if there is one best way of of looking at these things. Um, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of searching for the the pragmatic part of this, and maybe there isn't one that doesn't have to be one. Well, I think uh, I think where we were going with the characters. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. You sure? I think you're heading the right direction. Oh no, I I, I don't know that it was. Go, you go first. <laughs> then I'll see. <laughs> so Mitchell, I think what you're you're kind of laying your finger on is to say. This is fun uh, theorizing, and it's fun philosophizing, and, and even psychologizing. But, but what's the purpose? Where pragmatically, pragmatically does it pay dividends? Or yeah, or I'm cool to have just fun doing it because I think it is very fun. I, I love the, the idea of the prospector versus the astronomer and different things that could represent. But I didn't know. I guess I was looking when you asked me my thoughts. Those are my thoughts. I was just searching sort of internally for what it could mean practically. Um, yeah, I think you... I think you know that... Go ahead, Jason. No, I was just going to say, I think that, that's basically what I was going to say. I think, like, you know that, Michael, when you said, I think it's, it's extremely fun in trying to find these characters. I'm not sure the uh, the total purpose for it yet. It seems very helpful, and it seems like a very uh, fun thing to do, and it's kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's been it's fascinating, I think, too, and, and somewhat enlightening, I guess, to to try to pinpoint these these little areas of of things that I guess I I struggle with. But I'm I'm not quite sure, of, like you said, of the total uh, purpose or what what it all encompasses. I guess. I personally think. Let me. It's a different way of modeling our experience uh-huh. that has a lot of utility. Because we usually think yeah. of it as a unitary thing. But if you think of yourself instead as kind of a bundle of other personalities that are eternal, uh, it's a different model, but it's, it, it has different it has different consequences. And so... I, Personally, I find it useful to be able to take these different abstractions, or you could say lenses, and apply them. Uh, My sense is that being able to switch between the models gives you a richer sense of what you're experiencing or what we're Mm -hmm. always experiencing. I happen to land exactly where Craig landed, 
Uh, I'd want to say one slight differentiation and then a, a brief point about Christianity and how it might overlap. Uh, the point of differentiation would be to say that I don't think all of the spirits that possess us are necessarily eternal. I think that some of them come into being in history and go out of being in history uh, and exist seasonally and then come back into being uh, seemingly in a new way. But I especially appreciate, I think, what you're getting at, which is to say they last longer than people do and they animate multiple people and sometimes entire cultures and tribes and nations. Um, but I'd say that differentiating with regard to how Christianity might overlap as we develop, and especially as we watch young people develop around us, they become aware of and are taken by ideas and emotions, spirits, if you will, both positively and negatively. And one of the unique things that Christ does when he gives you this new life, when Christ comes into you and the spirit of Christ is something you're made aware of, pray you don't make shipwreck of your faith. But if you have that spirit of Christ, his role is to serve as Lord. He is to be the head of that pantheon. He is to be the, the captain of the ship who is ordering all of the, the folk on the ship. And he, he helps the galley master know when he needs to go into the galley and cook. And he helps the, the harbormen know when he needs to go and take inventory. And he helps each of them to fill their role and in a lot of ways redeems them such that your ambition, which used to be prideful and selfish, can become righteous and holy in subjection to Christ. And your violent strength or your drunkard strength or your your sexually uh, lustful strength or whatever it was that was corrupting your life in subjection to Christ can be pointed in the right direction and given the right path to, to do so that it serves your whole being well. It sounds like somebody is walking inside. Mitch, is that you? I'm sorry, I'm outside. Is it too loud? No, it sounds it sounds good. I just wanted to allow the conversation to be ended if one of the, the four of us were in the end. Oh, no, I should I think... out here. It's too windy. Craig, when I made the distinction that I just made, uh, is it a distinction without consequence, or do you think, yeah, Michael, I actually think what you think? No, I'm, I'm, I'm right on. If you would if you would have pushed me against the wall, I would have said the same thing. <laughs> Uh, well, Jason, what do you think about the utility of it? And what do you think of the little the painting of Christ, the Spirit of Christ animating some, and when the Spirit of Christ is animating you, he is ruling as Lord over these other lesser spirits, these lesser lords? I think uh, I think you like articulated that like wonderfully, and I thought you painted a beautiful picture, too. I like that you brought in uh, that little verse to shipwreck your face and stuff. Um, I guess, and I and I, th- I totally agree with you 100%. I guess um, I think the utility of it is, when Craig was talking about it, that verse came to mind in Revelation where it talks about the creatures and it says they're full of eyes all around and within. So I think that's uh, like where it's it's useful to, to look at, to look within yourself and try to identify all these things and you can name them and uh, 
call them out when they're trying to take control of the ship and give it back to Christ. But I guess, um, I don't know. I, uh, it seems like a lot of times I don't want Christ to be the head of the ship, you know? <laughs> it's like, if I'm being honest, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. uh, you, you have all those, it's, it's very sad thinking about that actually, that, uh, he should be the head of my, the captain of my ship. And it's, I, I'm constantly, these other little characters in me are trying to push him aside or, uh, create some sort of mutiny, you know, and overthrow the ship. <laughs> um, do you think, here's a question though, back, back for you. Do you think there's, um, other spirits that, or those characters or whatever you want to call them that once given, once you give the, the wheel helm or whatever to Christ, then he would, he would basically banish them or make them walk the plank, so to say, like, like maybe greed or something like that would, <laughs> or is that the hope? <laughs> yeah. I think so. I, I think that a lot of them will be surprisingly redeemed. Like, we'll be shocked to find the utility of fill-in-the-blank with X, that thing that used to be really bad for us, holistically. Yeah. But in Christ is redeemed. I think we'll be shocked at how many are redeemed. But certainly there will be some that that are thrown overboard and, and forced to die. They not only bend the knee, like everyone does, but they bend the knee and are, are put to death. Now, Mitch, what's been your experience, both personally and then secondhand in some of your Christian friends? Uh, the metaphor is really working out uh, uh, of the ship. I, I think the last time we talked about it, we conceived ourselves as captain, but in uh, other other crew members always vying to be captain. I think it's nice to to give over the captaincy to Christ. And uh, I think certainly uh, when you do that, certain things must walk the plank while uh, certain other things are redeemed. That was a good way of looking at it. Certainly, uh, it seems that certain things uh, crawl back aboard and and, (laughs) and (laughs) whisper mutinous in thoughts in your ears. So, it's a it's a tough go, but the metaphor is a really good one. I think it's gotten a lot of mileage uh, since Craig has mentioned this one before, and I, I think the way you paired it with Christianity, Michael, is, is really is really potent for me. So, if you're not supposed to be captain, uh, if you're supposed to have Christ as captain, what role might you fill? That's meant to be a leading question. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we get lost in the metaphor then. Can I propose uh, an answer? Sure. I think you ought to be the first mate. (laughs) I think it's your job to make sure that the rules of the captain are followed. And then also the inverse. You've got to go down and and check on your parts. And you've got to make sure that the guy who's loading the boxes is doing his job right. And he's doing okay. Because if he's starving and, and he stubbed his toe and he needs to be cared for. Uh, you need to make sure that the captain knows he needs to be cared for so that time can be spent caring for that part mm-hmm. of you. Uh, because unfortunately, they'll they'll raise up in mutiny if you neglect them long enough. I'll say from my perspective, yeah. I don't actually experience... I love it. Any, I don't experience myself as a crew member on the ship. I experience myself as the ship itself. 
being driven by the individual spirits. That there's not there's not a single me. It's a single personality. It's actually a collection of personalities. It, it's not. That's that, an even better well, answer. But it's that it's the uh, the fundamental religious question is which spirit should be the captain. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's a really good way of I'm looking a, at it. I see the utility of these models, gentlemen. Thanks for your help. Yeah. I've got a, yeah. a three-minute warning. Do we want to try any lightning rounds from Craig or from anyone else? <laughs> How to spend these three minutes? Some quiet reflection. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. I don't know, it just made me think about, I like Craig talking about his body being the ship, it made me think about just the ark and the story of Noah and, uh, yeah, the, the just what the body actually is, it, yeah, it being it being the vessel. Here's a, a question. So if, if we really are the ship, do we exercise any genuine authority or any genuine influence actually, on yeah, who I or think... what captains us? I think we're the ship and the crew in the metaphor, Craig, if I'm not misinterpreting it again. <laughs> right. There's uh, Obviously, we're, we have to recognize where the metaphor starts and ends. <laughs> yeah. We are, yeah. We are, <laughs> we want to say there's an I, but in fact, in, we may actually be more like a we. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, to me, I so think we it's are, a, you're, you're both, but the the ship is the the ship is your flesh. The ship is your body. It's the, the ship is feminine, and the other ones would be the the masculine. I guess is that maybe I'm stretching this too much. I don't know. That's just where my mind goes. Is that that yeah. the the body is a yeah the the body would be the ship because it's the vessel. And yeah. the other things, it's not that they're not you, but maybe a collection of you in a sense um, that direct the ship. Well, Mm. Maybe, maybe that's not one, that way. one potential stretch is to say that the captain should when we say the captain is the word the captain is the logos the captain is the, the dialogue the thing that mediates between the others uh, I, uh, that's how it ought to be I, you know, I, one thing I really like about the metaphor or at least getting that frame of mind is it feels like it you feel like you might be feeling the way that the Greeks felt uh, when when Paul spoke to them about about the logos. Yeah. <clears throat> what did he say to them? That's where my expertise ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like a good place to end. I have a uh, question I'm not before you need to jump off. But no, we can wrap it up here. Can I just ask a, a final question before before we get off, and then we can end it? Um, okay, so I'll I'll just to all three of you, if there went well, I guess if your guys are okay with it, I'll try to post this as a podcast. But what should we call it? Any ideas for a title? 
the prospector and the astronomer. <laughs> the captain of the ship. I like that. That's pretty funny. Greg? Greg, any advice? I don't have an answer. I feel like we talked about evil for a long time, and that kind of bummed me out. <laughs> it kind of bummed Monkey, me out. Monkey, right. Well, I, I'm I'm indi- I'm indifferent, but I'm oh, more scary. than happy to talk about it in the uh, over text or something. Gentlemen, have a wonderful night. Greg, thanks for recording. Mitch, thanks for initiating. And uh, oh, Jason, thank you for recording. Sorry about that. Man, I thought I was going to get some credit. <laughs> no respect. Bye, guys. Great. Thanks for thanks for merging the calls. Great. And and not following, not following prey to that that spiral echo thing. I'm glad you didn't you didn't embrace that. It's tricky, man. I'll see you later. See ya. Hello? 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 Hello?